I just can't believe that's true. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it, I, I, I think I must be misunderstanding because it seems like you can move the value of the electricity, electricity magically without any of the problems of transportation. <laughs> can literally see he's like he's speaking slowly he's actually like each step as it like but it requires someone with you know a 150 iq or whatever he's got to to catch all of this as i mean it's probably the first time he's ever heard it and and this leads me to my natural question is there uh, i i have noted no, noticed this personally and i'm just curious if you have as well that there is there there does seem to be uh, an intelligence factor when it comes to early adopters of bitcoin and i i don't mean to uh, you know, fillet the uh, the Bitcoin maxis out there, but it does seem as if uh, you know the vast majority of early adopters are of higher intelligence, and that those that will be the the followers uh, of them are are less so. Is that has that been your experience as well? Um, I like to take the more humble path of just saying <laughs> that uh, no, it's actually just that uh, fiat people are fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Today's episode is with Saifedean Amos. Saifedean. Goodness gracious. I can't even like, I can't, I can't stop smiling. Um, I really enjoyed this tremendously. And it, it starts off a little bit slow, uh, but then I, I remind Safe that uh, this is in fact a safe space for profanity. And he lets loose. Uh, Paul Krugman gets the worst of it. It is one of the most joy joyous moments of my life going back and forth with him, just describing how much we despise uh, him, but more broadly, uh, Keynesian economists. So you will absolutely love this. I promise you that. Uh, stick it out and, and uh, just bask in the demolition of the Keynesians. Goodness gracious. I still can't believe it happened. It was so much fun. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say before we get started, please, please, please uh, hit the like button, subscribe down below, and leave a comment because that helps with the algorithms. And uh, if you're out there and you uh, want to help a, an old boomer like me out, uh, clip it, share it around, send it to your friends and family, let them know that there is a pathway out of the fiat hellscape that we currently languish under and hopefully this will be a stepping stone in that process or in in the beginning of their journey that i'm sure many of you are already on yourselves enjoy big shave has been psyoping the american people for decades plastic cartridge razors are a scam they jack your face up and cost too much you don't need expensive replacement cartridges you only need one stainless steel blade take down big shave and shave plastic free veteran owned family operated nadoshaveco.com again that's nadoshaveco.com n-a-d-e-a-u shaveco.com sign up with code lockdown for a special discount for my audience only support the liberty-minded businesses that support liberty-minded shows like liberty lockdown and that ladies and gentlemen is nado n-a-d-e-a-u shaveco.com promo code lockdown and we're go safe is in the building my goodness have i been waiting for this moment uh thank you so much for joining me man thank you for having me clint it's a pleasure well in the in the pre-show we were talking about the new course that you're starting up so go ahead and tell my audience about that before we get going yeah so i've spent the last uh 
four and a half years or so working on uh, my uh, magnum opus, if you want, the book that has uh, taken up the most of my time. It's called Principles of Economics, and it's an Austrian economics textbook, which is something that I've always wanted myself. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, I scratched my own itch and wrote the book that I would have wanted to teach because I never quite found the textbook that I wanted to teach at university because, you know, the majority of textbooks are Keynesian nonsense. And um, there was just not quite a good Austrian accessible textbook that's readable for the modern reader, easy language to understand, and that doesn't get too bogged down in the details of um, academic debates on Austrian economics and other schools of economics. So I wrote that book, and I think it provides a very good introduction to economics. And I published it earlier this year, and starting in September, I'm going to be giving a class on my website, my online learning, my online learning platform, sacreddean.com, where we're going to have a new lecture based on one of the chapters of the book every two weeks. And then we'll have live seminars where we can discuss the chapters of the book. Love it. Well, uh, could you just give from... me one minute? I need to turn on the air conditioning. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sec. Go for it. All right, let's go. Perfect. Well, uh, if there's anything I know from the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard, uh, your your textbook probably will not be 101 level, but you do uh, an incredible job of breaking down really complex topics into obviously processable formats as uh, you are famously known for having orange pilled the great Jordan Peterson. Uh, I want to play a clip from that in a second, but before I do that, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, it was Menger's uh, marginal utility is only about 150 years old. Uh, I'm curious, how, it, how is it that we operated uh, up until just two lifetimes ago with such a improper, to put it kindly, uh, economic understanding? I think uh, the uh, perhaps the unflattering answer here is that um, people are much better economists in the way that they act than they are consciously as economists. And so mm. your inner economist is out there making marginal decisions every day without you having to understand that decisions are marginal. So, um, so we, we survive based off of our own, <laughs> our own intelligence, not the central planners intelligence. Yeah, our own instinctive intelligence almost and trial and error and just realizing that if you made decisions based on aggregates rather than marginals, margins, then you're going to be suffering. And so we learn these things. We learn how to think about economics and about money um, from our parents, from our ancestors. We see what works, we see what doesn't work, and we act upon it. I still think, though, it's uh, it's a massive boost when you can consciously understand it and then consciously understand the implications of it and then act upon them. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Um, 
Uh, you don't know me from Adam, so I'll give you my brief background. My audience is sick of hearing it, but I got to tell you anyways, uh, I ran a mortgage company, a hard money mortgage company, which is, you know, real investor capital and, and real collateral, none of this uh, leveraged nonsense. And uh, I utilized, you know, Austrian economic understanding to, to really be successful in it. And I ultimately exited that industry because of my Austrian economic understanding and realizing that there was too much, uh, you know, macro risk that I, I just simply couldn't evaluate uh, or, or safely deploy that capital into this market. And I, I think that's the one downside of if everyone had a Austrian understanding, uh, they would probably not be deploying capital in this market. They would be running for the hills or, or migrating towards Bitcoin or precious metals, things of that nature. Uh, and you'd see a, a real a real reset uh, and not the not the great kind. Um, yeah, but actually great reset. Yeah, I think that's yeah, true. True. And it's um, in a sense, it is also kind of happening. And I think it's uh, it, it makes sense uh, from a capital allocation perspective. I don't think there is a better place to put your capital into right now than investing in something that obsoletes central banks, both mm -hmm. in the terms of financial return and in terms of a humanitarian return. I mean, if I was rich and I had a lot of money and I didn't know how to do good in the world, the best thing that I could possibly do is put central banks out of business and so um the best way to do that is to just buy more bitcoin and help people understand and get into bitcoin and it's effectively you know bitcoin isn't a uh, isn't a stock it doesn't offer you returns on your investment but in a sense it kind of functions like uh, angel investing or um uh, maybe vc investment where the way that you're rewarded as an investor is through the appreciation of the token itself rather than any kind of uh, yield that the token makes. So it's a decentralized um, jury rig solution for crowdfunding a uh, central bank replacement where mm -hmm. anybody in the world can finance this network and make it grow by holding Bitcoin. All you got to do is just hold Bitcoin. That increases the value of everybody else's Bitcoin, increases the value of cash balances everywhere in Bitcoin increases the amount of uh, people who have uh, Bitcoin in their cash balances and therefore increases the likelihood that people will trade with one another with Bitcoin and takes away cash balances from national currencies, which is really the uh, key thing here. Because if you don't have cash balances in national currencies, then inflation doesn't work anymore. Inflation is pointless. Right. It, it won't finance anything. So that's 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 why I think Bitcoin is uh, so great because it's a it's a free market solution that's going to put central banks out of business. I'm here for well, it. Yeah, you and me both, brother. That's what I live for. Um, so I, I found I found a statistic or, or a, an analysis today that I was totally unaware of that El Salvador only owns a slightly over two thousand Bitcoin. I, I was blown away by that. I I had thought that their adoption had been far more significant, given that you're uh, now an advisor. Um, do you do you foresee that being uh, just a drop in the bucket to a, a greater acquisition or what do you think? Uh, to be honest, I don't know if that number is correct or not. I've seen that number and I know it is an estimate by the Associated Press. They've estimated it based on El Salvador's announcements of how many Bitcoins they're buying. But oh, okay. I'm not sure that that is an accurate number, but I think it would Potentially, I mean, it, it, it's not it's not tiny. It's a um, it's a significant. No, it's significant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, it's more than more than any other nation. <laughs> bought, yeah, so. and it's and it's only the government's uh, Bitcoin. That's uh, separate from individuals. So uh, right. individual Salvadorans will have their own stashes. But I think you know the uh, the valuable thing here is that you want to have exposure to Bitcoin. You want to build your exposure over time. 
because of Bitcoin's volatility, it might not be the smartest thing to go all in. So um, El Salvador mm -hmm. went in, started going into Bitcoin around May uh, 2021. Bitcoin around that time was in the 50s or in the 60s, uh, mm -hmm. 50,000 or so. So they bought gradually over the next few months. But, you know, if they'd gone all in at 50,000 uh, and, and they put, went in with a lot of their cash reserves, they'd be in pretty bad shape today because it had gone down. So right. you want to time your entry, and that's true for you as an individual or for institutions. You might want to be a little bit careful about going all in. You want to protect yourself in that you need to make sure that all your fiat liabilities, you have enough fiat to meet them over the next, say, six months at the very least. But yes. most likely, you know, if you want to be conservative, you want to think about two, three, four, maybe five years. So you want to have enough fiat to meet your liabilities for the next five years, no matter what happens with Bitcoin. And you want to have the rest of that money going into Bitcoin. This is how I think would be the most responsible way of getting into it. Uh, because, you know, if you have a family to feed and you go all in and then Bitcoin crashes 60%, you're in deep trouble. You might yep. end up having to, um, you know, unable to pay off your mortgage or whatever. Indeed. So you want, to, you want to make sure that you can cover your liabilities in fiat terms and then accumulate as much Bitcoin as you can. And over time, you want to, you know, obviously the key thing is to stay solvent, stay um, uh, and, and keep having a, a surplus so that you can always put that surplus into Bitcoin. And so that then, you know, the increase in the number of Bitcoins over time and the increase in the market value of Bitcoin over time eventually will work in your favor that then you can become primarily reliant on Bitcoin, that Bitcoin becomes the main stash. And I think, right. uh, you know, I, I, I haven't discussed Bitcoin strategy with um, anybody else in El Salvador in, this term, in these terms yet, but I think this is kind of the long-term play, that you, um, if you replace your dollars and treasury bonds in your cash account with Bitcoin over a five, 10-year period, well, then you've massively changed the way that your economy functions because now instead of everything being built on the melting ice cube of the dollar and the treasuries that are made to rob you, that are made to get devalued over time, you have Bitcoin, which is appreciating over time. And so you no longer need to continue to borrow from everybody. You don't have to be a debt slave anymore. It is, and I think a big part of the reason why all countries have to borrow, all countries are in debt, is because it makes no sense to hold assets. If you wanted to just hold dollars, then you will find your dollars depreciating over time. So then you have to hold debt, you have to borrow, and you have to lend. These are better ways of protecting yourself against inflation. So you buy treasuries, and then you issue your own bonds, and you borrow. And then you're trying to play this game of interest rate arbitrage so that you can squeeze out a few little uh, points on the margin and hope that, you know, the devaluation of the currency works in your favor because you're a net borrower. Right. And then all of that is thrown out the window when you have a, an asset that you can hold that appreciates with time. Because then why hold bonds? Why hold dollars? Why issue bonds? You can just hold Bitcoin and accumulate Bitcoin and spend from the Bitcoin. And then over time, you just continue to increase your Bitcoin stash and the value of the Bitcoin stash goes up. That, I think, is the long-term uh, vision, uh, how I'd like to see it. I, I, I don't speak for anybody in El Salvador. And, of course. Know, I, my, uh, my role is purely advisory. I, I don't have any kind of authority there. So I, I don't uh, 
I, I don't speak from any kind of um, uh, inside knowledge or anything or decision yeah. making potential. It's just I think this is this is really the key thing that people need to uh, do with Bitcoin. Stack sats until you're financially free. It's true if you're, in, if you're an individual or if you're a government or if you're a company. Yeah, well, uh, I think that the, the future for El Salvador with your uh, your guidance will hopefully be very, very bright. It has obviously already improved dramatically under Bukele uh, in recent history, and it <laughs> it was not not the greatest place on earth not too long ago. So the uh, it's been a dramatic shift and, and one that has given me a tremendous amount of hope. Um, you know, what I wanted to ask you about that based off of, you know, Mager's marginal utility only being 150 years old and, and, you know, honestly, I mean, we still function under a Keynesian morass, unfortunately, to a large extent. Um, is there, is there the potential that there is some revelatory, uh, economic insight, uh, granted you're on the cutting edge of this, so you could probably speak to it as well as anybody, um, that that could revolutionize even the Austrian school? Or do you think that, you know, it's, it's framework broadly is probably irrefutable. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Um, I think I, I, I go along with pretty much everything that the Austrians say that. So do uh, I, <laughs> yeah. for the record, but in principles of economics, I did commit one heresy, um, which I think you challenge is... Rothbard. How dare you? Yeah, Rothbard and Mises, and all of them, basically. And I challenged them with something that they were pretty adamant about, that it is correct, and they uh, brutally mocked people who uh, opposed them. But I believe I've come up with a different perspective on the question, and that is the question of interest. And I think Bitcoin is kind of relevant in determining this question. So, uh, you know, the, the, historically, there's always been um, opposition to interest and defense of interest. And the Austrian school falls firmly in the camp of defending interest. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, because they've come up with the explanation for why interest exists. And the reason that there is interest is because time preference is positive. And so right. the theory of interest that the Austrians uh, present is that uh, interest is a function of time preference. So when people have a very high time preference, they value the present a lot more than the future. And so if I want to take money from you today so that I could give it to you into the future, and so that I could give it back to you in the future, you're going to require a significant interest rate in order to uh, accept foregoing consumption today because you have a high time preference. As your time preference declines, then the interest rate that you're willing to accept declines. And so in a nutshell, this is the interest rate theory of the Austrian school, which is that it is a function of time preference. As time preference rises, interest rates rise and vice versa. And I think I agree with that. And I, I agree with the formulation of the theory. And I think it's very good at explaining interest rates historically. And I think it fits with the empirical record because we see historically the process of civilization, as I discussed in the book, is the process of lowering time preference. We see humanity continuously lower its time preference. And as a result, we accumulate more capital that increases our productivity, makes more capital available, which in turn, because we have more resources available, teaches us to become to have an even lower and lower time preference. And indeed, right. if you look at 5,000 years of history of interest rates, you see that interest rates have been constantly declining. Well, I wouldn't say constantly, but they've been broadly declining with uh, periods of interruptions where you have wars or famines or bad things that happen that raise time preference and raise interest rates, which is as you would, as you would expect. So sure. war breaks out and people's 
people's certainty about the future declines. People don't think the future is likely, you know, we might die. So, of course, you have a much higher time preference when there's a war, when there's a natural disaster. So you see, historically, we see interest rates declining. And with these spikes, there was a war and there was a famine and there was a, a something bad happening, a plague or whatever. When these things happen, interest rates spike. But historically, they generally keep going downward. So you get to the late 19th century and the lowest interest rate at that time was the one that the Bank of England got because it was the most um, basically the most credit worthy borrower at that time. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, that was what was considered the risk free rate of return. Wasn't risk free in World War One, but um, <laughs> that's the closest that you had, and it was only two and a half percent, which is historically unprecedented. We'd never had interest rates that low, so interest rates had dropped down to two and a half percent. Now, then, humanity took a massive, massive, massive detour away from sanity with World War One and with fiat money, where they started printing money, and that caused time preference to rise enormously and then interest rates became also manipulated by central banks so Mm -hmm. we're not really discussing real interest rates anymore because they're a policy but arguably they went down drastically sorry they went up drastically over the 20th century whichever way you measure them so interest rates go up then throughout the 20th century so my question is or my position here is that if we had continued on a gold standard into the 20th century and if we had continued on a hard money what would have happened more capital accumulation, more uh, uh, higher productivity, higher capital stock, lower time preference, even lower interest rates. And then eventually, where's that going to go? Eventually, interest rates are going to continue to drop. And my argument is that eventually, in a truly civilized society, interest rates will drop below the cost of holding money to the point where lending at 0% interest becomes perfectly rational on a free market basis. I think the point that they're missing here is that holding on to money is not costless. There's always a cost to holding on to money. So whether it's gold, you need to lock it up in a safe. If it's Bitcoin, you need to lock it up. You need to secure your private keys in a certain way. So there's always a cost to holding on to the money. And there's always a risk at attached to holding on to the money. You're holding on to your Bitcoin, you're holding on to your gold or your cash, whatever it is, there's always a risk. So people pay for somebody to provide them that service in a professional manner. You put your money in a bank, you put your gold in a gold uh, safe, in a gold treasury. So people find these ways of storing their money. Now, that means that the cost of holding money is negative. The, the, if you have 100 ounces of gold, and you hold on to them next year, you're going to have a little less because you're going to have to pay a little bit of that. Either you're paying it in storage fee or in insurance, or you're uh, maybe you're not paying it directly, but you're taking on the risk that it gets stolen. So it stays at 100 ounces every year, but one of those years it gets stolen and it goes to zero. So there's a risk involved. So effectively, you could say that you know maybe it's half a percent or it's 1% or it's a tenth of a percent. But there is a cost, and that cost means that as soon as the interest rates uh, drop to um, ab- drop to a point where they are lower than that cost, then it makes sense to lend at zero percent. So you're better if it costs you half a percent to store your money, then 
if interest rates on the market are zero percent, then it's, you're better off lending to somebody at zero percent because they're going to be giving you back your money in full without you having to incur the 0.5 percent in storage and risk. And so, therefore, assuming that they're a creditworthy borrower, yes. But if they are, then there's no point in charging them interest because simply returning the money itself is interest. Is saving you money. Yes. Is saving your money. And, and yeah. then, of course, in that world, the flip side is that in that world, because we're not making more money, because we are a low time preference society and we have um, fully eradicated the, the Keynesian parasites from our insides, <laughs> um, because of that, the money is appreciating over time. So getting 0% nominal return is getting a positive real return. And that's what people actually care about. People don't care about the nominal return. People really care about the real return. So therefore, I think, I argue that on a free market, as time preference continues to decline, eventually you get to a point where interest rates would decline to zero and we wouldn't have interest rates. And I think this is, this is where you can sort of uh, combine both perspectives, the uh, free market Austrian perspective, which understands time preference as a as the determinant of interest rate and the kind of religious uh, view which is against interest lending because all that it is saying effectively if you understand it in Austrian terms is that you need to drop your time preference down as a society to the point where you don't lend at interest if you're uh, if you're lending to people at interest that means your time preference is too high that is a fascinating thesis. As someone who obviously, uh, you know, lent out capital, I was riveted and and processing it simultaneously. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I'm on board, but it. I I, I see the logic. I see the rationale. I just still. I still tend to believe that you would never have a civilization where everyone was low time preference, and you would have people that are risk riskier borrowers. So, like, I guess those people would just they would be the only ones paying interest and then everyone that's credit worthy and and does function from a lower pre time preference would probably be borrowing at the zero bounder or thereabouts um interesting thesis man i i can't wait to read that but uh i'll keep it keep it moving i, I wanted to ask you uh, you know there's been much to my chagrin uh many in the libertarian community have argued uh in favor of modern monetary theory because of the advent of artificial intelligence. I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why AI would uh, nullify the uh, the laws of economics, uh, but they, they tend to believe so. Uh, do you think there, there's any credence to those arguments? No, not at all. Um, I think it's just, uh, it's the same thing. I, I think we've always had Luddites who thought this new iteration of technology is going to change things but technology always has been the same thing if you understand it economically it's any technological improvement if it is going to be used as a technology if it's going to gain acceptance it does one thing it increases our productivity it allows us to get more out uh, in terms of output per unit of effort that we put in so you work for one hour and the more you, technological advancement we make, the more output you can make from that hour. And this has been the case since, you know, the first hunter turned uh, uh, a tree branch into a, an arrow in order to catch rabbits up to AI. It's the same thing. So AI is massively increasing the productivity of a lot of people. Um, 
particularly programmers, I think it seems to be like that is the place where it is achieving the most returns where sure. programmers, I mean, I, I've, I hear stories about programmers who say their productivity has gone up 10 X because it seems like it's such a powerful thing, but that's, I mean, that's just another way of making programming more efficient. Programming was a way of making economic production more efficient and um, machines and mechanization and electricity were other ways of making production more efficient. So we're just increasing our productivity. Nothing fundamentally changes. We're not going to run out of jobs. There will always be jobs because there are infinite human needs. People want all kinds of things. And the, the more machines we have, the more productive people become. So it doesn't put us out of work. It makes our work more productive. It makes it easier for us to earn more money. It makes the lowest productivity people, it doesn't put them out of work. It makes them far more productive. So, um, you know, people, um, my, my example that I mentioned in Principles of Economics, and if you look at the cover, you see boats and how boats have evolved over time from like one tiny little dinghy boat to, um, you Super know, yacht. Uh, to, or to the you know modern tankers that carry thousands mm -hmm. of tons of uh, materials of trade goods across the world all that has happened here is that transportation has become more and more efficient we did not eliminate jobs in transportation what has happened is that the jobs in transportation went from being you're a slave that gets whipped, whipped to carry things on your back to a world in which you are an engineer that designs one of these boats and that boat, you know, you, you work on um, maybe driving that boat or you work on loading stuff onto that boat. And your productivity is infinitely higher than what it would be if you were just carrying things on your back on its own. So mm -hmm. the notion that we're just going to get to the end of scientific discoveries, that we're going to get to the end of technological inventions, that we're going to get to the end of productivity is completely unfounded. Um, and, and I think it's ridiculous that a lot of people say this stuff, um, you know, if you, particularly tech people, you know, San Francisco is a place with a lot of tech millionaires yeah. who do their own dishes. Like, you know, they need to make their own dishes at the end of the day and they're millionaires. They're worth millions of dollars. They run startups or they have stocks in all kinds of different high tech companies. And yet they have to take out their own trash. They have to wash their own dishes. They do all kinds of jobs that they need to do themselves. So the, um, and of course, you know, you don't even have to look at the millionaires. You, then you'd look at the poor people around the world and they have an infinite amount of needs that are not met. They don't have homes that have electricity. They don't have cars that can move them around safely. They don't have roads. They don't have all kinds of different things that they'd love to have. So the number of things that we could have as human beings, the number of things that we could add to our um, economic uh, well-being is infinite. And higher productivity is just going to allow us to meet more and more of those things. So I, 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 I'm, I'm firmly against the, both kinds of overreactive hysteria. On the one hand, this is going to destroy um, jobs and it's going to destroy society and it's going to destroy the livelihood of 95% of people who are going to become useless eaters and we need to find a way to control those people. And then on the other hand, you have the utopian, this is going to end work and it's going to make us all um, billionaires because we're all going to have infinite amounts of money. It's just going to make us more productive and uh, it's going to make life better for the people who know how to use it and for the people who deal with them and for the people who use the goods that they produce because things are just going to continue to get cheaper, but yeah. nothing fundamentally changes.
Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, just to steel men, the, uh, the counter argument is that it's the exponential improvement in technological, uh, you know, advancements that that could the the transitionary period from, you know, horse and buggy to vehicle is that it'll be too rapid and that we won't be able to adjust. And you'll have I think I think you're obviously correct that in a you know, in a hundred years from now, you will, you will just have people that have migrated from all of the jobs that AI was capable of replacing. But in that interim, you could have a 10 or 20 year period where uh, unemployment reaches 10 or 12%. And that would, in my, you know, this is my fear ultimately is that if that is to come to pass, well, you and I would advocate very fiercely against UBI. My fear is that these un-Austrian educated uh, people, uh, especially those that are in academia or those that are suffering uh, because they were laid off and they haven't, you know, migrated to that new employment opportunity, that they will demand that the government go down the UBI path. And once you've kind of let that gene out of the bottle, I'm not sure what we do to put it back. Yeah, I think that political threat is real, but I don't think there's any kind of real economic basis for it. I think the oh, U.S. Agreed. economy, the U.S. economy creates and destroys. I, I last heard this stat about 15 years ago, so I'm pres- I presume the number must be higher now. Something like 30 million jobs a year are created and destroyed. So people are constantly having their jobs destroyed and created. People are constantly losing jobs for all kinds of uh, good and bad reasons. You know, you fight sure. with your boss or your business goes out of business or they find a better person who does your job. But there's, uh, But this idea that increases in productivity will result in unemployment. I think it's just complete fiction in a sense that it has never actually happened because what actually happens in the real world is that at any point in time, you don't get the machines. The machines don't just replace the workers and put the workers on the street. The machines will make the workers more productive and the workers continue to have more and more productive opportunities. The machines create more abundance, so they make things cheaper for us. So, yeah. even so, so why, have... why would the employer lay, lay them off if they're just being more productive and bringing in more revenue? Exactly. And that's what we see. So in, in, in the, in, if you take it in isolation, you could say, well, there used to be these slaves that carried things on their back, and now they don't exist anymore. So all those slaves must have starved. Um, <laughs> right. and, and by the invention of the wheel, you know, we invented the wheel and we starved millions of slaves. And the reality is, no, those slaves they quickly learned that they could just push wheelbarrows rather than carrying things on their back, and they became a lot more productive. And yep. and it's. You know, the, the, people are always adjusting to this stuff. The, the 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 notion that people don't know how to adjust and that we must therefore give them UBI in order to help them is it's a statist nonsense that is used in order to um, control. Like the, the the agenda here is that we need to make people uh, dependent slaves on us so that they vote for us. That's the driver. It's not technology that's the problem. The problem is the Keynesian power. Agreed. Well, speaking of the Keynesians in power, uh, your your friend and mine, Paul Krugman, has something to say. It's astonishing to go back to economic surveys from the 1980s when we all seemed to be living in the same country, when Republicans and Democrats had basically similar uh, assessments of, of the economy. These days, Republicans claim that the economy is, you know, they, they're giving this economy a worse rating than the economy of 1980 
when we had seven and a half percent unemployment and 14 percent inflation right it just doesn't make any sense and it's clearly there's a strong element of just tribalism partisanship this is what people think they should say about the economy rather than an actual perception now you know you can make some uh, oh sorry and it's also the case they people the polling says that people and especially republicans say that inflation is rising uh when in fact it's falling uh and you say well you know but prices are up isn't that what matters but back in the reagan years when prices continued to rise there was never deflation then uh people did recognize that inflation was falling so something has changed now exactly what it is is it just partisanship is there just a were people just so shocked by the disruptions during the pandemic and the the reemergence of inflation after a couple of decades when we really didn't think about it at all that's that's a harder question to answer uh before you respond just let me remind you that uh this is uncensored you can say whatever you want so uh what what do you think what do you, what do you think about paul krugman's answer there <laughs> I think he's a complete fucking idiot uh, to begin <laughs> with. As you said, it's uncensored. This is my honest opinion. Uh, but, uh, well, it's not so much a complete fucking idiot as much as he is a um, an opportunist, despicable um, thief who lives piece of off shit. of the uh, piece of shit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's, it's, it's obviously um, you, you can't take people like this too seriously because you are arguing with um, somebody who's just... Um, you know, saying what he needs to say to get paid. He's somebody who knows very well how his bread is buttered. And he knows yeah. that the way that he gets ahead in his <clears throat> stupid career is to just repeat um, central bank propaganda. This is very well understood by all the successful economists. Um, if you let your brain get in the way of repeating the central bank propaganda, you are just not going to make it as an economist. That's how it works. So, yeah. um, it's it's very clear that it's you know there's there's always the rationale of central banks can't do wrong inflation is the answer government spending is the answer this is how you get successful this is how you win the bank of sweden uh, prize which um inaccurately portrays itself as a nobel prize it's not a nobel prize but it's it's a central banking prize and this is how you get a job in Princeton or Yale or whatever stupid uh, Ivy League uh, university he teaches at. This is how you get a column <laughs> in the New York Times. Uh, you go along and you just repeat what the um, central banks and the governments that finance them want to hear. And of course, the the, the ridiculous thing about it is it's, it's almost um, beneath um, answering as an economist for me because uh, it's, it's such a ridiculous... It's such ridiculous partisan politics where Republicans are bad and Democrats are good. And if bad things happen, then it's all about how it was all the fault of the Republicans. Like if you if you've read his idiotic ideas, it's it's ridiculous. Everything is uh, everything that has ever everything bad that has ever happened is a result of Reagan and Bush and Trump. And, right. you know, the, um, and of course, it's for somebody like me, I'm not even American, so I don't even care about American politics and I don't really follow it. It's like American baseball for me. I just don't follow it. I don't care if the Yankees win or lose. I don't know. And I, I don't follow blue and red team in politics at all. So it means nothing to me. And I find it hilarious where, you know, the, 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 because there's absolutely no difference between um, Republicans and Democrats on the things that matter. Um, and monetary policy is outside of the hands of the president. And so this nation, this notion that, you know, um, uh, Obama and Clinton did a great job, but it was all ruined by Reagan and the, and, and the Bushes and uh, 
Trump. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, there is a political establishment. There is an economic establishment. There's a financial establishment out there that gets its way, regardless of which uh, stupid uh, actor they have on TV reading prompts at you. Of course. It doesn't matter. And so ultimately, the, the monetary policy has been in the long run it has always been inflationary and uh, it recently got a little too inflationary to the point where people like krugman who are lied who are paid to constantly lie and tell you that it's not inflationary they had to admit that it is inflationary but of course it's always been inflationary and you know you don't look at the cpi the cpi is worthless government statistics it means nothing and there's a lot of problems with it and i discuss it in detail in the fiat standard discuss why it is completely bogus as a number but uh you know look at the price of houses i think this is the best measure of inflation that you should look at because for the vast majority of people a house is the single largest expense that they'll uh, ever purchase mm -hmm. And you look at what is happening to the prices of houses, and it is only going up, not because houses are becoming more valuable. In fact, houses are just becoming more and more plentiful, and they're becoming cheaper and easier to make because technology keeps advancing. So houses should be getting cheaper all the time. And in fact, in real terms, they are getting cheaper in the right. sense of uh, think about how much it takes you, how many hours of time it takes you to earn a house, to earn enough to buy a house. It is declining in absolute, um, but it continues to. But the price of houses continues to rise because the value of the currency is declining faster than the value of houses. So the currency is what's being devalued all the time, and that's why houses continue to increase in value. And that's why all the things that are hard to make, all the things that require, say, um, human skill. All the things that require human um, supervision and extensive labor uh, input rather than just things that can be easily uh, mass manufactured all these things continue to get more and more and more expensive over time so all the goods that you actually want all the things that rich people look for they keep getting more expensive you know a house in a nice neighborhood is continues to get more expensive education at a good university continues to get more expensive healthcare continues to get more expensive all of these things that are you know um, difficult to provide in mass quantities they continue to get more expensive because of inflation regardless of what the cpi says the cpi is designed so that it would almost always give you a two to three yeah. percent uh increase in inflation last couple of years things got really out of hand and so people like krugman had to kind of admit that all right we have a little bit of inflation but it's going to die down and and then he shifts it around to talking about Reagan. He shifts it around to, well, you know, uh, all right, well, people aren't happy that inflation isn't going down fast enough. But 43 years ago, they were a little bit happier back then. And so obviously <laughs> the reason that this is a problem right now is just because evil Republicans. Well, no, 40 years ago, they hadn't experienced inflation. They hadn't experienced 50 years of inflation like they have now. You sick and tired of watching your 401k go up and down like a teeter-totter? Well, if you're already hedging into Bitcoin, you might want to consider some additional diversification to help with that volatility. UBS shows that private assets like fine art can help diversify with a low correlation to stocks. Bloomberg reports art prices increased in 2022 with the highest total sales ever for major auction houses. In 2023, the art market has passed its pre-pandemic level, with tens of thousands of everyday investors already using today's sponsor, Masterworks, to invest in art. You don't need millions or art expertise. 
Every Masterworks sale to date has delivered a positive return to their investors. That's an incredible track record, including annualized net returns of 10, 17, and even 35% all this year. Masterworks' most recent exit was just days ago at the end of August for a double-digit 13.4% annualized net return. My listeners get special access to skip the waitlist. You just go to masterworks.art slash lockdown. Again, that's masterworks.art slash lockdown. Past performance doesn't guarantee future returns. Any investing involves risk, including loss of principal. See important disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. That's masterworks.art slash lockdown. Check it out. The rate of decline in the value of your money is declining. So, you know, inflation is is defeated, which is ridiculous. This is this is the talking point that all of these Keynesian prostitutes it's are. Yeah, all, <laughs> all of these really prostitutes are winded up to repeat this, which is, hey, inflation is down to 3% now, so inflation is down. Well, no, inflation is up. It's continuing to rise. Prices are continuing to rise. The money supply is continuing to rise. The rate of change may be slowing down. That's no consolation for people who have witnessed their life savings getting devalued. The life savings are losing value. You know, they were losing value at 9% the year before. Now they're losing 3%, according right. to the CPI. In reality, though, of course, it's, the numbers... It's higher than that. Yeah. Conservatively, you'd say it's double. Conservatively, I think you could say that CPI is half of what the real inflation rate that people experience. And of course, the real issue is that people don't experience an inflation rate because people buy all kinds of different goods. So it depends entirely on the goods that you buy. And the sad thing about it is that if you choose to be poor, if you choose to live your life poor, then you don't suffer much inflation. The things that poor people want are plentiful and don't have as much inflation. The things that you need in order to live a good life are the things that increase in price a lot. And that, not coincidentally, is why the same prostitutes who tell you inflation is not a problem also tell you that for your health, you should avoid eating meat. And in order mm. to save the planet, you should avoid eating meat. And that you should avoid modern fuels that give us the modern industrialized world because right. these are bad for the weather or some shit like that. And that, <laughs> you know, the way that you fix your health and the way that you fix your weather is just don't consume any of the things that are an issue for our CPI basket. Take them out of your basket of consumption. Eat cheap, heavily manufactured, mass-processed uh, garbage for food, and then you won't have a lot of inflation. Live like a 14th-century peasant off of a windmill, <laughs> and then you won't have a lot of uh, inflation because there won't be a lot of fuel. That's the thesis of the fiat standard, and I published a book almost two years ago, and I've not heard a single person try and offer me as a, a, a coherent rebuttal of this idea that this is how the fiat system works. It devalues your money, it makes you poor, and then it uses that money that they devalue from you, it uses the wealth that they take away from you to finance academics and university professors and uh, TV prostitutes to go on TV and to tell you, no, 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 you shouldn't eat the things that are becoming more expensive. You should avoid those things, not because you're poor. You should avoid them because that's how we fix the weather. And that's yes. what the science says is better for your health. It's, it's nonsense. It's, it's not, it's not that, uh, that you don't, <laughs> it's not that you don't, you can't afford meat. It's that you don't want it 
dumb dumb you don't want it that was the problem all along well look you said you're not an american so you don't take it uh you don't really pay attention to the the local politics and you find it all laughable well i am an american and i find it fucking offensive that he's going to talk down to people that are going oh my groceries that were uh were 150 bucks last year well uh, at the beginning of this year that was now 200 bucks and at the end of this year it's going to be 210 bucks and i should be fucking smiling about it fuck you paul krugman you asshole liar it's so it's so insulting and and, and the condescension with which he speaks to us about it, as if like, oh, we just don't understand. Inflation is down, you dumb dumb. You have to, you have to just wrap your head around it. You just not, you're not seeing this properly. He's you're not such smart a scumbag. Because you, yeah, because you don't understand second derivative, and you don't understand the second derivative is going down, <laughs> and like you don't understand that you're getting paid from the money that is being devalued. You right. are getting paid from people's I'm, money. I'm being robbed, so that fucker yeah. can propagandize me. How crazy is, is that? And, and, and I don't have to be an American to say this because the whole world uses the dollar. The whole world is getting True. robbed. Everybody else's currencies are getting robbed. The finance come like him getting paid their paycheck. And so, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that all the people that get paid from inflation happen to come to the very scientific conclusion that inflation is not a problem and that you should be happy and that the problem with inflation is that you are a stupid republican that's it you're a stupid republican <laughs> and you don't understand second derivatives if you stop being a republican and you voted for democrats and you learned some math you would learn to love the fact that your groceries are becoming more expensive you don't need to buy the the beef so you're actually your groceries are the same price well no they're not but whatever uh, yeah, look, and, but, and Krugman himself, he was—he's he, tweeted something about how he's keen and eager to start trying out all these new fake meat things because he's not a big meat fan, and hmm. that you know this is obviously going to be great. He said something about oh he's gonna—he can't wait to try his uh, spaghetti bolognese with uh, fake meat. <laughs> explains a lot. Explains the giant ass belly that he's got. Explains why he looks like uh, he's got the physique of a sewer rat, and it explains <laughs> why. Uh, you know, that <laughs> coincides with his economic ideas. Everybody needs to adopt the sewer rat physique pro-inflation <laughs> mentality. Oh, my God, man. Uh, this is my favorite thing to do is just to dunk on Krugman with you. I could do this all day. Um, you know, Michael Ballas has popularized the uh, the concept of, like, uh, the battle will be won once we have uh, the, the average man views a corporate news journalist the same as they do a tobacco uh, lobbyist or tobacco CEO. Well, I view that I, I think the battle is really won for the Bitcoiners and the Libertarians and the Austrian economics folks and the ANCAPs of the world once they view the uh, Keynesian economists that go on TV as worse, as worse than the tobacco lobbyist or CEO. I can't sure. stand that guy. Can't yeah, stand. I, I can't. I can't even compare them to the tobacco industry. Yeah, I mean, they're honorable comparatively by a large. Oh, absolutely, margin. absolutely. I mean, the tobacco industry wasn't forcing you. They didn't put a gun to your head to force you to right. consume their things. But the Keynesians do put a gun to your head. They think you have to use their money, and they don't believe that you should have any alternative. Yep. But and and they and they they, and they, they laugh and they laugh at uh, at your suffering and they explain that it's your own ignorance that is is the reason for your suffering. They're fucking insufferable human beings. They are genuine. Like like I'm not even a, you know a violent revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination. But when I hear these people talk, it's so infuriating. It's like the only time that I like I go like eh, the non-aggression principle. Like they're kind of aggressing upon me anyways. They're stealing. They're robbing me blind and they're lying to me about it. So. Anyways, I won't say anything more because I do want to put this on YouTube at some point. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, it's so crazy. Um, so there's this uh, this Jordan Peterson 
quote that um, I actually want to play for you because I thought it was so, it was really quite profound. Um, and it's about central planning. And, and I want to ask you a follow-up question about, you know, technocracy. So here we go. You get this weird aggregation of things we need to do. And then the impossibility of, of rank ordering means you don't have a priority. Like what's the most important and how do you decide that? Well, that problem just wasn't addressed at all. And so this, well, it was an object lesson in how these sorts of things work. <laughs> it was central planning, but it, 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 was, it was so dysfunctional in some way. It, it's not like, it's partly because there wasn't anyone in the world who had enough intelligence, enough knowledge to make those sorts of decisions. No one, no one. I think that's, that's such a, it's a really profound way of, uh, you know, describing why both socialism or, or centrally planned economies, but also uh, this kind of new, uh, you know, technocratic elite that we're languishing under, um, why it doesn't work and why it's ultimately doomed to failure is that it, it requires a level of knowledge that literally no one is capable of having because it requires the individual decision making of seven or eight or nine billion people on the planet. Um, I'm just curious if the, I mean, first off, uh, did you did you find it interesting that he came to that conclusion? Just because uh, he was actually working, I think what he was describing there, he was talking about when he wrote a paper uh, for the World Economic Forum or for the UN. I'm not sure which. It was one of the you know globalist organizations, and I was just like, it's just it's just fascinating that he had that he had that realization after talking to them and not prior, you know, like these, that's what these, that's what these organizations are at their core is this belief that you can actually govern the planet. It's lunacy. Absolutely. This is, I think it's a, you know, anybody who gets into this field has this moment where they need to, where they come to the realization that there is no way that I could write a report about what 8 billion people need to do in terms of right. how they eat or how they consume energy. You know, what fuel should the world run on? You can't take that answer for 8 billion people. You can barely make that answer for your own home, for your own heating, for your own transportation. I mean, this is a very complex decision. Do you have a gas boiler? Do you have a heat pump? Or do you have, uh, or, or do you get an electric car? Or do you get uh, a gasoline car? These are extremely complex decisions for an individual to make on their own. You need to sit down, run the numbers. How much is this going to cost? What are the benefits of this? What are the added benefits? Um, costs involved with this one and it's an extremely sophisticated calculation to make for you as an individual so of course you cannot make it for eight billion people and i think um for me when i was doing my phd at columbia university this was a very um, important moment where you know I'm, I'm writing about how to design energy systems for the world so that we can meet sustainability goals or whatever nonsense or the other. And you quickly come to the realization that there's no way that I can make this decision. The amount, you know, if I wanted to put this stuff in an Excel sheet, that Excel sheet needs to have 8 billion cells and each cell needs to be one human being. And I need that cell itself to have that human being in there making all those decisions. Well, no Excel sheet can fit 8 billion sentient beings inside it. You can't just code in a sentient being inside each Excel right. sheet. And even if you did, they're not making decisions in your Excel sheet. They're making the decisions in the real world. So the only place where they are making those decisions are, is in the real world. And that's where the decisions are made. That's where everything that matters happens. 
and in, therefore the answer is not for you to keep trying to make your Excel sheet more sophisticated. It's for people to have the ability to make their choices for themselves. That's what it comes down to. That's the really important thing. So if people are able to make their choices on their own, if they have the property right to make their own choices, then they are each able to calculate these decisions for themselves. And that's the only intellectually honest way to answer this question. And in my opinion, and um, this is hopefully going to piss off some people, but I think if you have intellectual honesty, you come to the point where you realize, okay, I can't do this. And you start thinking about what this means and what the implications are. And then if you're in a PhD program, you're going to have a bad time. If you're at a bureaucracy, you're going to have a bad time. You're going to piss off your boss. You're going to piss off your thesis advisor. That's the only honest way to do it. The dishonest way to do it, which is what the vast majority of people do, is to realize that, look, I need to eat. And it's more convenient for me to eat by just parroting whatever it is that they tell me. So I'm just going to go ahead and parrot what they tell me. And I'm going to... Um, pretend that I can do it. And I think this is ultimately, um, mo most of these people are probably smart enough to think this through and figure out that it can't be done. And after years of doing it, you know, you see the cynicism, which they joke about when you get them, you know, that they, they get a drink or two in them. They start joking about how, you know, well, we're making all these plans, but it's not going to work because, ha, ah, well, you know, um, sometimes they try and rationalize it by saying, well, you know, people are idiots, and they, so they just don't listen to us. They do what they want. But I think over That's time proven. they realize, <laughs> yeah, but over time they realize it's not the people who are idiots, it's us who are the idiots because we think that we can just run people's lives from Excel sheets. Right. Uh, because your, your fundamental premise is flawed, <laughs> you know, like... That's you fucked up from Jump Street, so obviously it's going to be an issue. But the, what what I find interesting is that the, this entire technocratic approach seems to me to be uh, you know extrapolation of like the original master plan of technocracy, which was central banking, and now you have technocracy that has has kind of taken over both the the medical health establishment, uh, even the military industrial complex to a certain extent. They think that they can you know dominate the world militarily or or through psychological operations. Um, and yeah give the world democracy and until then you right. know, we need to bomb them and that's extremely profitable for us yeah well coincidentally well, and conveniently enough you know you all all these very well-intentioned people with all these very rosy sounding ideas happen to make a lot of money from these ideas yeah it's strange. Just, just a coincidence um but it, it it strikes me that you know well i mean you already are well aware that the uh the era of of total war coincides with the era of central banking so uh that no no coincidence there uh, but i'm i'm curious if you think that the the population bust that we've been uh witnessing in in many of the you know, quote unquote western nations uh can that be laid directly at the feet of central banking and and a uh, a higher time preference kind of worldview that has been foisted upon the people or i mean obviously it's more complex than that but do you think it plays a significant role very much so i definitely think so i think there's many ways in which you could see this uh, in the bitcoin standard and the fiat standard i discussed the impact of fiat money on the family particularly in the fiat standard i think one key thing is that if the family is not just um it's not ornamental it's something highly functional in our lives it's something highly essential and for all of, for the vast majority of human history Family was essential for survival. It was almost impossible to survive without a family, without right. a network of support. 
and in fact for all of human history it's it's it's, it's impossible for a child to make it without the support um, you won't survive young age or old age uh, mm-hmm. without family support around you so it's necessary it's always been necessary for people to have family around them what the 20th century did was it took away a lot of the roles of provision that the family takes and gave them to the state because the state is on the one hand taking away your money and taking away your ability to provide for your family and on the other hand because it's taking away your money it developing all this wealth which it can in turn use to provide for the family so the state then becomes the family replacement for people so you don't have to worry about teaching your kids because the government will just teach them but also you don't have to worry about investing in raising kids because when you grow up hey there's social security they're gonna take care of me they're gonna you know love me and kiss me every night and uh, <laughs> put me in bed and tuck me in. I mean, if you look, if you talk to the average statist moron, this is generally the impression that they have of the government. Like I saw, I've seen so many people in my life say, why would I want to have a, a family when I'm old? You know, the government will take care of me. I'm just paying into my retirement account and then the retirement account will continue to be there and that there's health insurance and, um, I don't need a family. And well, even if this was true financially, which it isn't because all of these things are Ponzi schemes. And by the time you're going to be retired, you're going to realize, oh, crap, all the money that I've saved up is not a fraction. It has come up to a tiny fraction of what I put in because the money is constantly being devalued and you're putting the money in bonds and stocks and all kinds of shady financial instruments that can have all kinds of uh, problems with them. So financially, this is a losing trade. And also, of course, it's, it's, it's built on the silly idea that we can have a free lunch, that we can all contribute money and we can all make more money um, and we can all get more out of it because, you know, we all think that we're going to be the one that comes out ahead in the Ponzi when, of course, that's the main prerequisite for being a Ponzi victim is to think of yourself as being able to come away from the Ponzi on top. And that's why everybody's going to get shafted by the Social Security Ponzi. Yeah. But then yeah. even if this was true, even if this were financially true, you know, you need more than just money. You need more than just uh, people to take care of you physically. You need emotions, you need attention and companionship. And you won't have that if you are constantly investing in... Um, your in meeting your current needs and high time preference desires rather than sacrificing the present for the future by investing and starting a family. So I think this is a major part of it. And I think um, the fact that uh, another part of it is the fact that people cannot save. And there's a major aspect and it's obviously related because you cannot save people's money is constantly getting devalued. So they need to constantly be working. So uh, this is why the families, most families move toward having two breadwinners. You need to have two members of the family working. And even if you don't have two of them, the one that does work has to keep working harder and harder. You know, uh, you can't just work for a few years, make some savings and then start working a little bit easier because your savings are going to get dissipated over time. So you need to constantly be working. You need to constantly be angling for the promotion. You need to constantly be trying to up your productivity. And when you have two parents that are doing this, or even one parent that's doing this, you're just going to cause all else equal. You're going to cause fewer and fewer kids to be born because who has time for kids? And so we see this, you know, people have time for all kinds of um, superficial adventures, um, spending money on all kinds of 
the consumer bullshit uh, that's completely inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, traveling around the world, buying toys, buying new cars, buying this and this and that and all these things. But they don't have time for kids. And 20, 30, 40 years later, you know, it's going to, I think, hit a lot of people bad when they realize, you know, the amount of money and time and attention that I wasted on my pets and my vacations could have had me a child. Like, yeah, well, I, I, yeah I mean, I, for me, pets is just um, it is a mind blowing thing. Every time I'm in the U.S., I'm astonished at uh, just how many people have so many pets and yeah, it's so fur, obviously, fur babies. Yeah. Yeah. Fur babies. It's so obviously a child replacement. And it's a wholly inadequate um, child replacement because guess what? The dog's not going to be there for you when you're old. It's not going to be able to take care of you. Right. It's not going to provide you with grandkids that can take care of you. It's an extremely, 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 um, I would say, stupid investment uh, as, as a child replacement because and, and it, it, it is time consuming and it is uh, resource consuming. Obviously, a dog that may not cost as much as a child, but it's not that big of a difference. Um, and right. the, the, and the there's difference an the ROI with a child, potentially. Exactly. There's <laughs> an ROI with a child. And no matter how much you try and pretend that your dog is your baby, it is not your baby. And um, <laughs> don't talk to me about your pet like it is a baby. It isn't. It's a yeah, well... horrible, horrible, and I'd say even disgusting uh, alternative <laughs> because like people have their pets in their own homes. They have them on their beds. They have them on their couches. They have them in the kitchen, and they eat <laughs> off of these surfaces where the dog sits with its uh, open, it's... exposed butthole. That's not <laughs> that's not healthy. You don't do that, and you teach your kids not to do that. But you can't teach a dog to do that. No, it's true, man. I, I I can't tell you how many you know women in their early thirties and late twenties that I knew that you know were going through the maternal instincts, and instead of settling down or doing anything to to satiate that in the classical way that you might um they just opted to get a dog or two or three or four and it was or a cat you know it's like it's like man i know i know it's tough i know it's hard to you can't afford a house you think you can't afford a kid but i just i just really i think that they are i think you're right that they will ultimately regret it and uh, i wanted to ask you real quick about you you said towards the tail end of your interview with jordan peterson um that never use force and that individual rights always take precedent um and the reason i, I bring it up and this is kind of personal for me i have a uh, a sibling of mine um who has been dealing with drug addiction and i am in the position of you know really being uh motivated to strip him of his uh you know adult rights to force him into a rehabil rehabilitation facility uh do you think that that is improper so i'm not i'm not quite sure about what the context was in the case of uh Jordan, in, in the interview when i would say not use of no use of force i wouldn't say i'm not a pacifist i'm not somebody who thinks there's no legitimate use of force or violence sure, well, sure. but i mean you normally you can initiate it yeah well normally normally it would be a defensive and obviously i agree with you there it's nothing wrong with you know revolution or rebellion or anything like that if you're being oppressed too um but i'm just curious about you know if it's he's not aggressing upon me he's but he is in danger of injuring himself and it's like is that a is that a, a morally is that a place where you you could intervene and and would it be just in your view i'm just i know this is uh, out of left field, but I just thought I'd get your feedback on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very it's a very tough question, and obviously, it's uh, dependent on individual situations. I would say, um, you know, it's uh, the 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 point where it starts getting dangerous. The point where these things get into the point where you might want to intervene. Uh, obviously, it's very subjective, and you do want to be careful about the situation where. I mean, there are people out there who are addicted to drugs that are essentially functional addicts. And in fact, trust me, trust me, that is not the case here. (laughs) No, I know. But I mean, you could could easily see how, say, you want to get his inheritance and then you could go around and saying, well, he smokes a few joints and uh, (laughs) reefer madness and we need to lock him up and then you get to get all of the money. So there's obviously that always that case. that you got to be careful about. And in my case, uh, I mean, I, I'm somebody who's uh, not eaten any plant food basically for the last eight years. I'm a full carnivore. So from Hell where yeah. I stand, everybody is a, a massive junkie of sugar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the average sugar addict is more controlled by sugar than your average um, illegal drug addict. Most illegal drug addicts have to you know, at least hide away from the police and hide away from people that will report them to the police. So they learn to manage their addictions much better than sugar junkies who are welcomed and indulged at every turn. And they have their TV and their media constantly telling them, yeah, yeah, indulge yourself, treat yourself, have another Twinkie, have another uh, pack of Doritos. Um, So I think addiction is a massively prevalent problem. And I'm I'm, I, I, I lean a little bit against this kind of idea of vilifying people who are um, using illegal drugs just because they are illegal when, you know, like, you know, you, you get people who are clearly addicted to sugar to a point where it's destroying their life. They're diabetic and they're uh, of course falling apart and they can't go a whole hour without getting a sugar hit. But they're extremely concerned about functional uh, addicts who smoke joints or right. do some other drugs. And and legally, you can never intervene with someone who's 700 pounds and just is eating all day, every day. Like, there's nothing you could do for them other than yeah, say, exactly. hey, you probably it, shouldn't be doing that. What are you doing? He's, he's massively profitable to the food companies and to the pharmaceutical companies. Right. Um, but I would say if it's getting to the point where it is um, dangerous, it's where it's life-threatening, then it must at some point involve the um, aggression against others or the threat of aggression against others. Yes. And that's where then I think uh, the gloves come off. That's where, you know, you might have justification to be able to do something like this. Like this person is threatening me. This person is going to rob me in order to fund their addiction. And then that's when you are, I would say, from a moral perspective, within your rights uh, to intervene. Because like I think, you know, I believe in the non-aggression principle, but that doesn't mean, the non-aggression principle doesn't mean you have to wait until a bullet is lodged in your head before you start defending yourself. And so credible threats, you can defend against credible threats, I believe. And so, um, you know, I don't want to get the the details of your case. um, Yeah, I I can't go public with it anyways. Yeah, but I would say, you know, if we lived in a functional society, it would, um, in, in a functional society, you'd be in social settings where such things can be contained because you both live within uh, structures, family and power structures that are voluntary, but also quite effective. And so 
you're, you know, you, you are family. So you either have your parents, your uncles, you have the family elders, you've got um, the town elders. And these are intelligent people that are, you know, respected, well admired across society. Difficult to imagine this now because most current old people are just senile sugar junkies. Um, <laughs> but there was a time when being old meant you were wise because you'd gone through life <laughs> and seen a lot of things and uh, managed to maintain your sanity enough to develop complex ideas that gave you an advantage over young people. Today, right. being old means you've just had a shit ton of time to destroy your brain with sugar addiction. And so therefore... <laughs> We end up with your average boomer, who's a lot less mature than your average teenager. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Like, at, I, I, I did an interview with uh, Kate Shanahan. She wrote a great book called Deep Nutrition. And she says, uh, it's really mind-blowing when you look at it. I mean, not so far off. Like back in the if, – if you look at what old people were like in the 70s and 80s, they were a lot more wise and uh, dignified than old people today. Like, you know, old people today are still hippies in many ways. They're still um, they're still high time preference uh, degenerates, effectively indulging their day to day desires. You know, the the, the concept of ski, uh, ski vacations, uh, spend kids' inheritance. This is. This is how the, these people think. Like, let's let's yeah. make sure we spend everything before we die. And this is the generation, you know, the people that are dying off right now. They are the generation that were born into a world that had hard money, lots of savings, a lot of capital, a lot of civilization. They squandered it all on a giant ass Ponzi of mass consumption, and now they're scrambling to in debt their children and their grandchildren take away whatever it is that oh. you know they've spent many generations inheritance and they're spending the next generation's inheritance so in a world yeah in a world in which we weren't getting destroyed by high time preference with you know with the food with our decisions with our morality with our society with our families i think we'd be in a world in which these sort of things would be relatively easy to deal with so in this kind of situation you know your uncles your parents the people in the family the extended family they know you they know him they know the situation they know who's got their life together they know that you are not doing this just because you're trying to rob him of certain thing or the other it'll be yeah, very easy to establish the facts to um um you know interested uh, outside observers or um, people who are close to you and then it would be relatively straightforward without having to resort to anything very ugly or violent in order to, to rein them in because if you lived in a situation in which you didn't have the government going around taking care of everybody providing everybody with welfare allowing everybody to escape the consequences of their actions it'd be a lot more difficult for somebody to go and just lose control of their life throw themselves over the edge because at every step where they take a wrong decision, they have friends and family and cousins and uncles and extended family members and society and local community that tell them, hey, you know, you shouldn't do this. And mm -hmm. if you do this, here are the consequences. You know, right. your brother is going to cut you off. Your family is going to cut you off. And then um, in, in a functional society, this becomes much more difficult because you need these people to survive you need these people for your interaction you need these people for money um you know people stop buying your goods people stop letting you go to their supermarkets to buy goods 
all these things are plausible in a situation in which people are concerned about you. So without having, I think this is really the key thing, that in a functional society where the state did not interfere in everything and it did not destroy money and it did not um, it did not subsidize vice and it did not mm. protect people from the consequences of their actions, you don't have to put a gun to somebody's head and tell them, all right, I'm going to shoot you if you take another drug. You could just simply shun them without doing anything violent, without aggressing against them, by simply just using, but refusing to deal with them or choosing to boycott them. Right. You can inflict extremely heavy cost on them that will make them revisit. You know. So right. if you live in a town and everybody in this small town says, "All right, we're not going to buy or sell anything from this guy until he stops doing whatever it is that he's doing," you could effectively starve because. You need people. You need to be part of the division of labor. And mm. I think in, in principles of economics, when I describe you know, how a, um, a voluntary, peaceful society could exist, I think this is really the, 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 um, this is the, this is the enforcement arm of it, is shunning and boycotting. Yep. Because uh, the way we can think about it is, if you want to be part of the division of labor, if you want to uh, harvest the fruits of the division of labor, the extended order of society where we all trade with one another, you have to abide by certain rules. And if you don't abide by those rules, you don't get to play with us. So if you aggress against others, if you do nasty things, you it, it, it's a duty for others to exclude you from the division of labor. I'm not going yep. to be selling you food if you're going to be robbing somebody else. I'm not going to take part. I'm not going to buy your product if you're going to be doing bad things. And I think this is a far more effective way to excommunication. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. No. That that's fascinating. And uh, you know, I, I hope I hope this will be helpful for my audience uh, to to hear from you as to you know how how that might be addressed because I've been struggling with the decision as you can tell. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have asked you. Um, but you know, I do think it's life threatening. And, uh, while you were explaining that, it actually took me down a totally different thought process. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have 10 more minutes? Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, what, what I've realized, and I, I'm in a fortunate position where I've had a father and a stepfather and a mother who were all, um, you know, intelligent people who gave me good advice and God bless them. But, uh, what I have realized as I've, you know, I turned 40, so is that really setting my parents aside and some people in my family, but um, just broadly speaking, the the older generation has failed us in such profound ways um, that I feel and I feel as if many in my peer group now, uh, particularly given that I'm, I'm, you know, I know so many people that are in the influencer category, whatever that means, uh, is that these people in their 20s and 30s and, and early 40s and, you know, including yourself, um, I feel I have felt a calling as if like for the longest time, I always assumed, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be called upon to lead until I was old and gray. And and I, now I feel as if it's imperative that I do so now. Um, did you have you felt similarly at all? I must say so. Yes, I think that's there's something very true about this. I think um, I think, as I was saying earlier, our the generation that's um, older than us, our parents generation has had a number done on them in terms of mm. the, the fiat world and i think it's uh it's taken a heavy toll on them yeah and uh they've internalized a lot of the ideas that we were brought up to think of as being um progress as being um uh, you know this is just how the world is but um, a lot of us our generation is 
waking up to that and going back to more traditional uh, conceptions of family and life. And um, our parents' generation is just not. I think they uh, th this 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 issue is cyclical. In fact, if you read history, you see that this is uh, this is kind of uh, a natural process that always takes place. Wherein uh, you see it in the history of nations, you see it in the history of families. So there's uh, mm -hmm. there's a family that you know start out the classic um, in Scotland there's a saying the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, so you start off with a family that's poor, and then one person in that family manages to work really hard, and then you know with low time preference with effort and with dedication, and over an entire uh, lifetime they manage to give their children a much better life than the life that they had. Right. Now those next generation of children are still born into Maybe optimistically, it takes more than three generations, hopefully. But you know, the next generation is born into the hard work, and they pick up some of the values of the hard work. They carry the baton forward. They move things forward. They have a better life. They give their kids an even better life. Maybe that third generation then is born with a little less of the work ethic and a little more of the toys and nice things that you get from wealth. And then they just get to think, they start to think that these things are just by default. They don't understand all the hard toil that went into them, all the sacrifice, all the decisions that needed to be made, all the low time preference decision making that had to be made in order to get you to this point. And so they just assume. Mentality. Exactly. So you're born entitled and you just <clears throat> continue to expect that things will fall into place. And for many of these people, things do kind of work like that you can spend most of your life um you know for one generation can spend its life living off the work of two three previous generations it just won't pass anything down to the next generation mm -hmm. and i think this is this is really the boomer generation in the sense that they came from larger families they had fewer kids and they didn't pass things uh, they didn't pass on to their kids as much as they could have or should have ideally because they had a lot of their life spent in the kind of um, mass consumption um heavy right um hedonism just enjoying life as it is and i think uh you no know, then the next generation is forced to go and dig deeper and reinvent yeah. the story again and just to start the story out, all over again yeah figure out all the ways in which their parents or their grandparents led them astray and uh, I mean, the, the one advantage that this younger generation has is, the, is access to the Internet and, you know, really genius level mentors that you, you would have had to, you know, go to some six figure college just uh, 20 years ago to, to be able to hear from. And now you can hear from them for basically free, uh, just your time allotment. And uh, <clears throat> that gives me a lot of hope. I, I it's just it's just fascinating because. Uh, I don't know. I just never, I never really thought that, I guess I also, I didn't think things were so bad. Uh, but then you get locked in your fucking house for a year and a half and you're like, oh yeah, no, I better get involved. Like shit's falling apart. I don't know. I don't know what happened to these people that like no one values liberty anymore. Like th this is where we're at. Uh, it's just, it's amazing because I was, you know, I was a, uh, you know, kid when or teenager when, uh, when nine 11 happened and it's just like that that precipice and i don't know if it's the same for you because you weren't in america but i'm telling you man from from 01 to 23 in america has just been like a fucking just a a, a plane on 9 11 hitting the ground in pennsylvania it's it's been unbelievably precipitous and um 
it's it's really I think in the to spin this positively, it has it has uh, you know put out the siren call to a lot of lot of my peers to to get involved and to try and and fix all of this. Um, it's daunting though. <laughs> it's daunting as fuck. Uh, do you ever do you ever feel overwhelmed with everything, or, or are you able to maintain positivity? I've I've heard your kids in the background, so I'm sure that helps. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, having kids is how you. Uh is how you rebel against the world and right. how you um, uh, how you win really because um, I mean it, it, it's almost uh, <laughs> it's almost it's it, it's really very basic animalistic to a sense I mean we're we're on this earth and if you let the world conspire to have you die before you have had at least two children i'd say then you've basically lost you know you've lost <laughs> the game of life because uh, you're on this earth if you leave with two kids that means there's two people in the world that are half you so that's a draw like if you have two kids that's kind of a draw <laughs> and if you need to do more than two kids in order to win i think this is really, i love it because like worst case scenario is you know whatever happens in your life if you manage to be survived by three kids <clears throat> Well, there's more of you left on Earth after you die than when you came in, and they can and they can play the game of life again, and um, maybe some of them will win. Oh, that's so, fascinating. I love it. You got to have three kids to be a winner in this life. All right. You, you hear me, Liberty Lockdown <laughs> folks? You start start having kids right away if you want to win. Oh, that's yeah, seriously. Man. I think I think I think there is an there's an um, a serious biological imperative here where you just want to answer that, and I think people are taught to drown that out with uh, hedonistic experiences and with short-term uh, pleasure rather than thinking about the long term so yeah. i believe this is one of the most important things that you can do just to maintain the family and uh, i think what helps with that and the other very important thing to do in order to remain hopeful and cheerful and constructive and not get overwhelmed and not get uh, drowned out is Bitcoin. For me, Bitcoin just continues to provide me with such a strong um, foundation for building my life upon because you know, I, I, I escaped hyperinflation in Lebanon because of Bitcoin. And mm. um, it's, it's an enormously, enormously, enormously powerful technology for me. And it's something that has really made my life a lot better, but also it gives me hope for the long run for the world that, yeah, if I can do this, more people can do it. I think it's only a matter of time before more people do it. And when more and more people do it, we're going to see more and more people able to think of the future, able to plan for the future because they're able to save for the future. And so they're able to live better, more constructive, stronger, happier, healthier lives. So I, this is really for me, what matters to it. And in, in my books, I describe this as, I, I, I say this bluntly even, that you can think of the hardness of your money as like a control knob for your time preference. When your mm. money is hard, then you're able to save for the future and you can expect your savings to maintain their value into the future. And so that encourages you to think more of the future. On the other hand, when your money is easy, money is soft, money is uh, expected to lose value over time, right. then you have no reliable way of providing for the future. So the future becomes more and more hazy. It becomes more and more uncertain. It becomes less real for you. And so therefore you discount it more and you become more and more of a short-term person and more and more of a high time preference person. And that's why I think this is, I mean, this is why my ideas are very popular among Bitcoiners. It's not because I 
um, you know, it's not like I'm trying to just make Bitcoiners do this. I think it's because I've touched on something real that a lot of Bitcoiners have felt like once they've gone from a world in which they have no idea what to do with their money and uh, they just watch their money lose value. And so they just spend their money constantly and mm -hmm. they live day to day to a world in which they can expect to maintain their wealth for the future. Suddenly, all kinds of things change. So you see this among Bitcoiners. You get a lot of families. You get a lot of kids. Bitcoiners are constantly having kids. Bitcoiners constantly become um, more future focused. I've heard it from so many people. You know, once I discovered Bitcoin, I realized uh, what a stupid idea it was to waste my money on drugs. So I quit drugs and now I just do Bitcoin. And it's <laughs> That's incredible, over. man. Yeah. And I, I, I even heard from somebody who um, discovered Bitcoin, then introduced their drug dealer to Bitcoin. And then the <laughs> drug dealer got into Bitcoin and then they started stacking Bitcoin and realized Hell that's yeah. better than dealing drugs. And then the guy had to quit drugs because his drug dealer became a Bitcoiner and not a drug dealer anymore. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, th this ties in perfectly to the, the final thing I wanted to show you. And uh, obviously you already know what it is because you were present for this and you were actually responsible for this revelation. I thought, I think... Honestly, this is one of the most profound moments in any interview ever because it, it, it required someone as brilliant as Jordan Peterson to, to do what he did, but it was all predicated off of your guidance and your inspiration. Um, but what I found so just marvelous, honestly, about this, this portion that I'm about to show you um, is that it just shows like you can actually see the gears in his brain cranking <laughs> as as he as he finally like gets it and it's just it's just so special so for the sake of my audience i want to show them it and uh and then i'll, I'll get your comments as well sure but with bitcoin you just need an internet connection you take the bitcoin miners to where that energy is and then you can monetize that energy and turn it into bitcoin it's magic so, so so what's the what's the net effect of that on the price of electricity worldwide is that is that is that deflationary with regards to electricity cost i think so i think this is this is a point that i make in the fiat stand which is that you know we've had fiat subsidize all these dysfunctional forms of energy over the last 50 years that have led to the grid becoming unreliable and we have bitcoin like the vigilante savior that it is coming in and providing a global subsidy for anybody who can make electricity at a cheap rate to monetize that and I think well, not only at a global subsidy, but it's so it's so interesting because not only you could go to where the energy is cheap with virtual certainty that you're going to make more and more money as the value of the Bitcoin increases by by investing there, assuming you assume that the value of Bitcoin is going to continually increase, which is a logical presupposition if it's if it's as stable as as is claimed and it's finite in the way that you're describing and increasingly widely accepted by vast numbers of people. So it's also an investment that's likely to increase in value over time rather than decrease. So it takes some of the uncertainty out of investing in cheap electricity generating processes that are geographically isolated. That's, I just can't believe that's true. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I think I must be misunderstanding because it seems like you can move the value of the electricity, electricity magically without any of the problems of transportation. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll, I'll end it there. The, the whole clip is incredible, but uh, I just thought that was such like it's you can literally see he's like he's speaking slowly. He's actually like each step 
as it, like, but it requires someone with, you know, a 150 IQ or whatever he's got to to catch all of this. As I mean, it's probably the first time he's ever heard it, and and this leads me to my natural question: Is there? Uh, I I have noted no, noticed this personally, and I'm just curious if you have as well that there is there there does seem to be uh, an intelligence factor when it comes to early adopters of Bitcoin, and I I don't mean to. Uh, you know, fillet the uh, the Bitcoin maxis out there, but it does seem as if uh, you know the vast majority of early adopters are of higher intelligence, and that those that will be the the followers uh, of them are are less so. Is that has that been your experience as well? Um, I like to take the more humble path of just saying <laughs> that uh, no, it's actually just that uh, fiat people are fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> It, it would be too presumptuous for me to. Uh, <laughs> We're not smart. It. They're just yeah, dumb. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that couldn't be a better way to end it. Uh, Safedine, I, I have enjoyed this as much as I imagined, plus some. Uh, you know, this has been a, a real culmination of many, many incredible interview interviews with uh, Bitcoin folks. I just want to rattle them off real quick. Guy Swan, Greg, Fo Greg Foss, Gladstein, Marty Bent. Uh, Princey, Stefan Levera, uh, I've got a Thorup, uh, oh, Mikkel, uh, and, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy even, uh, I've had on the wow. show. So, uh, it's, uh, I really do feel as if I, I have gone on this journey. I, I went from, I started the show three years ago, uh, as you can tell by the name Liberty Lockdown. And, uh, at the time I owned no Bitcoin and I have, have gotten pretty involved. Um, I wish I had started sooner, obviously, but I was in the old fiat game. So I can't take any credit for being the high IQ folks. Uh, but it has been a, a real masterclass of education for me, and I'm I'm so grateful that I was able to take my audience along with this ride as I evolved personally from a a fiat master to a, a bit of a harder money version of myself. And uh, I can't can't thank you enough for all of the people that you have helped on this journey. And uh, I really do believe that you will go down in the annals of history as one of the great Austrian economist thinkers, right up there with the great Murray Rothbard. Uh, so thank you again, sir. Thank you, sir. Very, very kind of you. You've uh, left me speechless, which doesn't happen often. <laughs> well, that's a perfect way to end it. If anybody wants to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com or you can uh, sign up to become a subscriber over on my Twitter and uh, that's at Liberty Lockpod. Uh, all of his books will be in the description below. Please uh, go out, grab those. I promise you they're worth every fiat worthless penny you send his way. Uh, I hope he will convert that, as I'm sure he will, into Bitcoin right away. And uh, last but not least, if uh, if you want to pick up one of these shirts, go to toplopsa.com. We're out of here, folks. Peace. Was that good or what? Did I lie to you? Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I just wanted to remind all my Bitcoin viewers out there, which I'm sure there are more than, than usual watching this episode or listening to it, uh, that you can also listen to Liberty Lockdown over on the Fountain app if you would like to support the show. Send some sats my way. You can do so on the Fountain app, and also you can get paid some sats for listening to the show over on the Fountain app. So pretty cool uh, innovation, and I hope you guys will enjoy that. Just a reminder before we get out of here, hit that subscribe button, leave a comment, smash that like, and uh, hug and kiss your mother because she's awesome, and she deserves it. <laughs> See you guys soon. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?